All right, welcome everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy Episode 3. Um, thank you for coming, really. Uh, I hope this is interesting and uh, opens you to some of the thoughts that have been flowing through my mind and different ways of grappling with and thinking about these ideas. So I want to start off with a few different uh, Zen stories. And like for those of you who are new, what I like to do often is I like to understand the way that different traditions view the mystical experience um, and how they kind of comment on each other and, and the way that these different views could kind of portray different sides of ourselves, I think. You know, there are times in myself where what I need at that moment is the most Jewish view of the mystical experience. The, you know, I need to be praying in front of Hashem, pleading with God for something. I need to, to really feel like um, I'm, I'm effectuating some kind of change in my relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then there's other times where I feel like, you know, it's, it's totally too much ego for me and I need to just simplify everything and I need to just come back to my breath. And both of those are beautiful and both of those kind of uh, are part of the human experience. Uh, so, so I hope you enjoy these, these stories as much as I do. I think these are always a great opportunity to, to really sink your teeth into what we're talking about. So here's the first story. Nan-in, a Japanese master during the Meiji era, received a university professor who came to inquire about Zen. So you have a guy who's coming uh, you know, to this tremendous guru to ask about Zen. Nan-in saved tea. He poured his visitor's cup full and then kept on pouring. The professor watched the overflow until he no longer could restrain himself. Yeah, and he's like, what are you doing? You're, 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 you're spilling. It is overfull. No more will go in. So like this cup, Nan-in said, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? So this kind of a story shows me like the first thing I need to do when I approach this type of thing, when I approach it all, when I approach the universe, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I need to empty my cup. I need to eliminate all expectations. And sometimes even I need to eliminate this memory of the past, expectations of the future, eliminate thinking, and totally just rest in this moment. Empty my cup. And you start to realize like it's okay to not be empty. Don't judge that and let that go. And just keep on letting go. And then let go of the letting go. It's all therapeutic in that way. But the problem arises really when we judge ourselves for what we're feeling or what's inside of our cup at that moment. Um, so here's the next one. And of course, feel free to comment or ask any questions you might have. Of course, you too, Uncle Richie. Uh, Buddha told a parable in a sutra. And if, if that word Buddha bothers you, all it means is a person who allegedly found some degree of enlightenment and peace. Nothing religious for me. The reason I called it spiritual psychotherapy is because that's what Zen is. Zen really is a type of therapy uh, for us in terms of the thoughts that we have and answering those and quieting those down. So Buddha told the parable in his sutra, a man traveling across a field encountered a tiger. He fled the tiger after him. Coming to a precipice, he caught hold of the root of a wild vine and swung himself down over the edge. All right, so he was being chased by this tiger. He decides to go over the, the, the edge of this uh, ravine, hanging by a vine. The tiger sniffed at him from above. Trembling, the man looked down to where, far below, Mother Tiger was waiting to eat him. Only the vine sustained him. So imagine that. You're dangling, and right below you is a tiger. Two mice, one white and one black, little by little started to gnaw away at the vine. Well, no problem. The man saw a luscious strawberry near him. 
grasping the vine with one hand, he plucked the strawberry with the other. How sweet it tasted. So just to, to paint the picture in your mind, you have a guy who's hanging by a vine. He sees a tiger under him. And then he looks up and he sees slowly these, this white and black mouse are each gnawing away at the vine. And yet he sees, and so, so no matter what, you know, talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place. I actually mentioned this in my Kohelet class last night. You have the equivalent here of being caught between a tiger and a vine. And you have these mice eating away at the vine. So you can't cling to anything really. And yet you take the time to enjoy eating that strawberry. And to me, this is probably one of the most profound stories that I've, I've ever encountered. If you know Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, he has a rule. He says, when you encounter a cat on the street, pet it. Take time to pet it. No matter how insane your life is at that moment, no matter how many things are going on, you could be so busy. God forbid, you know, things going on that are not good in your life that really, you know, people have so much going on. Don't deprive yourself of the opportunity to enjoy the small things and appreciate the little things. So, you know, they, uh, you know, I remember being in my first year of medical school and God knows, thank God, you know, I'm so blessed to have so many support systems, but I remember being so overwhelmed at certain points and, uh, eventually, you know, I was just, you know, running around and it was Friday and I had to get to shul and I just got, you know, finished studying. I got home from school and I, all of a sudden I see the sky and, and it's opens up like the entire universe was there. And I see the beauty of the clouds. And I just took a moment in the, in the midst of all the hectic stuff going on. I really felt like this is exactly what that rule means. This is what it means to eat the strawberry. So to me, what is the, why is there a black a mouse and a white mouse? So what that represents for me is the idea of yin and yang. That in our lives, there's a constant uh, push and pull. There's a constant tension between the yin and the yang. And we might think that we could find some solace in life at times. We feel like everything is on the up and up sometimes. But it's like, no, there's always going to be this tension. There's always going to be that yin and that yang. And it's constantly gnawing away at the thread that's keeping you alive until eventually you're dead. This life that we're living in is yin and yang. And then eventually it's over. And then you go back to the, the non-dual and the one and the universe. But until that time comes... That doesn't mean you can't enjoy the strawberry. So I really, I, I, I can't say enough about this because, uh, you know, there's another story. Um, they say there was a man falling from a, a cliff and he's petrified. He's like, what do I do? What do I do? And he sees a rock falling next to him. And what does he do? He grasps onto that rock and he's falling with the rock. And you see the absurdity in that. Why grasp at something that's falling with you? You might, I mean, it doesn't really make a difference, but so, you, but you might as well, okay, you know, if something's falling with you, you could kind of say, all right, might as well enjoy whatever it is. But in that case, it's also telling you it's okay to let go as well. And just appreciate the free fall, because at a certain point, that's what life becomes. Um, any questions or comments so far? Strawberry stories, like when people know that they're at the end, they enjoy whatever they can, like they could do less. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's that someone says, "Okay, I have six months to live." They do, they make a bucket list. A hundred percent. I think it, it's it's especially palpable at the end, and it's also true at any given moment. Yeah, because you never know when the end could be. Yeah, exactly, Uncle Richie. I just had one little comment that something that resonated with me on your first story, please. the emptying of the cup. Um, it feels like there are two modes that your brain operates in. Hmm. One is focus mode where you're constantly thinking about things in life and you don't get a chance to go into the second mode, which is diffuse mode. Hmm. Your brain 
actually empties and cleans itself out of all the toxic thoughts or other things that you might think about in your everyday life, your job, your family, and just gives you a time to, as the cup you said, empty the cup. Absolutely. So you empty out your, your mind. So, so that well and the other one about the mice that you said about the black and the white mice, which is the yin and the yang and mm-hmm. could be the good or the bad. Um, and then just grabbing for that strawberry because maybe the guy thought he was going to die. So he wanted to eat a strawberry before he was. <laughs> exactly. You know, your last meal is something there's something romantic about that. But I think exactly what you're saying is true. We do operate on two different planes. And when we're engaged in thinking that's my well, I'm going to mute now. Oh, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that when you engage in thinking, uh, what you, you're doing is you're, you're occupying your brain with something. And that's okay. That's fine. But the key is not to identify with those thoughts too strongly and not to allow them to brush you off or, or to like kind of throw you onto your face. Instead, just watch those thoughts. And use them. Use your brain like you would use any other organ. So your your pancreas, it knows its place. Unfortunately, sometimes the brain is like on overdrive. And the, the best way really to operate and the way that Zen is trying to teach us is to kind of use the brain and consult with it when needed and otherwise just go with the flow of what's happening. So I think those are fantastic comments all around. Uh, third story, Ryokan, a Zen master, lived the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening, a thief visited the hut only to discover there was nothing in it uh, to, to steal. Sorry. So, that, so, so Ryokan is the Zen master. A thief comes to his house and wants to hush something, he wants to steal something. And there's nothing in it to steal. Ryokan returned and caught him. You may have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler. And you should not return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered. He took the clothes and slunk away. Ryokan sat naked, watching the moon. Poor fellow, he mused. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. Wow, that that one is is extremely, you know, some people might take that the wrong way, especially from a Western perspective. But this is something that that I think is like really blows me away personally, because it's not only is he thinking of another person. Okay, that's a beautiful thing in and of itself. He's thinking of a thief and what is going on in his mind. But the real thing is from Rio Khan's perspective himself. He's a person that's so easily able to let go of things that it doesn't even matter to him in the first place that there's somebody that wants to take something from him. He doesn't even identify as an ego to the degree that he's willing to give up anything. And he appreciates the moon so much that he's like just satisfied sitting naked under the moon and, and watching the moon that way. And there's this, this quality within Zen that is almost like, a, like Teflon. You're not sticky anymore. You allow things to wash over you, no matter what it is. And you don't get stuck on anything. You don't get stuck on possessions. You don't get stuck on ego. You don't get stuck on he said this, she said this, all the dramas of life, which God knows there's so much of. And you're able to appreciate the beautiful moon for what it is just in that moment. And that's, I think, what it's trying to cultivate, those moments of total equanimity. And we'll see more of that within the Kabbalistic stuff as well. Um, I wrote here a, a little note for myself, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I, meant, I mentioned this briefly in my last class. I just want to talk uh, a little bit about what the book says. The book talks about a man who is remembering his earlier life before he went on this kind of road trip with his son across America. And he remembers that he actually had a different identity. It was almost like dissociative identity disorder. 
and he totally, sh you know, shut out that identity. It, he used to be a professor who was trying to find truth, and he started questioning even how do we know what we know, what we call today epistemology, which I like to define as the study of the study of. How do we study things? Who is it that knows? The biggest question we can ever ask is, who is the one who's knowing? So he's asking this question, all right, there's, there's subject and there's object. Maybe there is no distinction between subject and object. And he ends up really losing his mind from this line of thinking because he ends up going to India and he, or to Japan, I think. And he asks the guru, he says, well, what about uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And the, the guru says, yes, that too is an illusion. And this totally topples his mind. And in the end, he has to kind of come to terms with this other part of himself, which still yearns to know this answer. Who am I? And how can there be all this evil? And how could you, I know it's an illusion, but how could it, how could it be? How could it be that there's all this evil and, and all this pain that feels so palpable? And these are things that are not going to be answered in words throughout your life. The things that are going to be answered in experiences throughout your life. Question, Uncle Richie, or, or comment? Yes. Uh, didn't Aristotle say the only thing I know is I know nothing? Aywa, I love it. Exactly. You know that there's, there's a wisdom in letting go of trying to be a person who knows and realizing I don't know. And that's, there's, there's so much to that, honestly, because when I'm the one who knows, I'm immediately putting a separation between myself and that which is known. But once I say more something like there is just the knowing, or you meditate and you get to a certain level where you're sitting there and you hear sounds and it's not me hearing the sounds. It's just the hearing. It's just the sounds. That's a new level. That's more of, a, of what it's really about. But I love that. Any, any, any other uh, comments or questions? Oh, ID, Baruch Abba. Miss you. I'm live now. How are you? Good to see you. I got all my relatives tonight. This is great. Not everybody. <laughs> That's right. Okay, great. Um, so we're right over here. So I'll, I'll, I'll scroll up just so you can see some of the stories we discussed so far. Um, so the next thing I want to discuss briefly is, has anybody here ever read uh, the book by M. Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled? Um, and it's, it's a really beautiful book. It's written by a psychiatrist and, and he, it's really very, quite profound. So he raises this question in his book and he's actually a very religious guy. He ends up becoming um, a, a very devout Christian, evangelical Christian. Um, but at a certain point in the book, he, he raises this question. He says, is belief in God a type of mental illness or not? And you would say to yourself, like, wow, that's quite an audacious question. And the answer is, yes, it is an audacious question. But what does he mean by that? Why is he asking this? Well, he gives you two stories. He says, I want to give you the case of Kathy. Kathy is his patient. She comes and uh, she's almost catatonic. Yani, she can't even, like, speak. Um, she, she, she can't even operate as a normal person because she's so tied up in her anxiety. It's actually medically dangerous to be in catatonia. Um, and he ends up, you know, finally getting her to speak to him. And she reveals she was having these impure thoughts because her husband is not sleeping with her. And she's having these impure thoughts about uh, another man. And she, in order to avoid going and sleeping with this guy, she repeats over and over to herself a mantra or like counting. And she, she develops obsessive compulsive disorder to the degree that she can't even speak to other people. She's just constantly counting and praying. And eventually they go through the therapeutic process and he works through a lot of her issues with her. And she emerges from it saying, you know, the version of God and, you know, that way of belief in God, it wasn't healthy for me. And eventually he, he catches up with her like six months later. He says, OK, so what's your story with God these days? She says, you know, I don't, I don't think it's healthy for me really to think much about God these days anymore. So that's one story. The other story is the, the case of Theodore or, or Ted. 
So Ted is this 30 something year old guy isolating himself in a cabin in the woods, totally depressed, totally bitter about life. And he discovers in one random session that he's especially vitriolic about one thing. They read a poem about something that sounded religious. And he says, I have no use for that senseless drivel. And he says, uh, you know, I, I noticed you have a very strong reaction to this. He says, yeah, I have no use for this religious nonsense. And he discovers that uh, when he was a young boy, he used to be a choir boy. And his brothers, you know, would really torture his life. They would make fun of him. And they said, oh, you're uh, Theodore. And his aunt told him, oh, Theodore uh, is such a beautiful name. But he said, no, his, his brothers made fun of him for it. And he he totally dropped religion because and his, his best friend died. So he lost faith in God. And that was it for him in religion. And then towards the end of his story, he, he works through a lot of his problems. And, and, and as he goes through them, he starts to realize, uh, as you read here, Ted Kaczynski, um, who, that's the, the Unabomber. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I didn't realize. I guess that's very much, yeah, what, what drives a lot of people to to doing very savage things is uh, is that kind of a sentiment where, you know, trying to burn it all down. But yeah, this this guy, Ted, he felt, you know, really, really lousy in his life, but he was finding God again. And he found that when he was a kid, he wrote these beautiful religious poems and he reconnected with them. And eventually comes the end of. Uh, of his sessions with with this guy and he decides he's going to go to ministry school and, and he, the whole time he was signing his checks as Ted. And then he changes it the last couple of weeks and he starts signing his, his checks as Theodore. And, and he, it's, uh, you know, this is curious to M. Scott Peck. He says, why do you start signing as Theodore? He says, well, my aunt told me years ago that Theodore means lover of God. And he says, now I found out, I realize I truly am a lover of God. So the point that, that M. Scott Peck tries to make here is that for some people, belief in God could be really contributing to a lot of their mental illness. For other people, it's contributing to the healing. So for me as a psychiatrist, when somebody comes in and they say they're an atheist, or they say they're a believer in God, I'm less interested in the way that they label themselves, and I'm more interested in what that means to them. And you could meet somebody who's extremely religious and actually an atheist. Like you talk about Sam Harris, he's an extremely religious person in a, in a way, from a perspective. And then you talk about some of these guys that are Jewish in name, and they dress the part, but they go and they cheat in business, and they sleep around, they do all these things not really so religious. So the point is, you have the Hashem people, you have the non-Hashem people. For me, I'm not interested in the way that they speak about the ineffable, because at the end of the day, it's all ineffable. What I am interested in is... What role does how they speak about the ineffable play in their growth journey? And I think that's something we could bring to other people and to ourselves. Any questions or comments uh, up to this point? No problem. Okay, fantastic. So for now, we'll, we'll skip this poem and we'll go into uh, this continuation of our discussion of Kabbalah. So we left off last time. We were talking about some of the different schools of thought. Um, yeah, exactly. Uncle Richie Einstein was agnostic, and, and he talks about the mysterious. Um, and he says, in that sense, in that sense alone, am I a religious man of the idea of the mystery of it all? So for Einstein, the way of talking about his religiosity was talking about the mysterious. For other people, it's, no, there's, there's a God who is like my father. And for other people, it's there's this randomness that is unbelievable and i don't know what it is but it's higher than me and all of these are beautiful and all of these are different ways of speaking about it but i think it's healthy for us as jews to connect to our view of god and our tradition and see what does this play off of in my own psyche in my own psychology in my own personal development before i go back to meet my maker someday so last week we were talking about the different schools of thought within kabbalah we have normal mysticism which is like just traditional judaism um, and then you have uh, mystical intimacy, feeling like this closeness to God, addressing God's needs, drawing down divine grace and prophetic Kabbalah. So we were talking about how one of the dangers 
in this type of thinking is that you could become even more egotistical when you feel like you're affecting a change in the mystical realm. When you feel like, oh, look, I'm a big macher and I'm going to go and, and, you know, make the sefirot have sex with each other. And now this, is, this means I'm so special. These are some of the dangerous things that could be happening. Um, but I think if you have the backdrop of what we're saying, you're going to be able to approach it with humility and approach it in a way where you don't take it so literally, you take it with a grain of salt and you use it as a meditation. You use it as a way of connecting to the universe and to God in a way that's not ego, egocentric. And I think that's very much possible if you take it as a, a mystical exercise rather than this is the one and only absolute reality. Because I think that's always dangerous. Um, so last time we talked about it aruta del tata and it aruta del ayla, that there's a random pasuk um, in the Torah. It says before Moshe went up to Har Sinai, Moshe Allah, Moshe went up to Har Sinai, and it never says that God commanded him to to go up to Har Sinai. It's like you might not think this is so important, but the Achami make a very big deal out of this. They say. Moshe, without even being commanded, goes up to Har Sinai. If not for that, who knows if the Torah would have ever been given. And from this we learn that from this, the rumblings down here, it causes rumblings up there. And that's actually kind of really true. We don't know how this works, how the dichotomy between God and infinity and my ego, how does this work exactly? How does my free will fit into all of this? How does God's will fit into all of this? There's something mysterious about it, but there's a partnership that can be felt. You know, I know that the neuroscientists might try to disprove free will, but I can't shake yet still the visceral, intuitive experience that on some level, when I know who I really am and I feel one with the universe, I feel like my will and God's will align. And in that sense, I have free will. That's the best way I could really put it. Um, so Moshe de Leon, who uh, wrote Sefer Harimon, he also wrote big, large parts of the Zohar. He says, by human action below, a power is aroused above. The mystery of observing the commandments is the mending of all the worlds and drawing down the emanation of the desire and will from above. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm just remarking for myself, how beautiful must this experience be? That what you might lose with strict Zen and strict Buddhism is what Mickey said so beautifully last time. It's not as much of a love story. Love can only be when there's two. It's very hard for us to understand what love means when there's only one. Love implies relationship and implies multiple. So in order for us to exist in a state of love with God, why not follow the, this beautiful way of, of our tradition of realizing, yeah, by observing these commandments and being in a relationship with the entire universe, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's a, a story we can tell ourselves. And you might want to say, oh, but you're separating yourself from it in that way. There's many different schools of, of mysticism, and I think even one of the Eastern ones, they decided, you know, before we merge with the everything with we want to remain on the dualistic plane for as long as possible to maintain that love connection and it's like you don't worry you'll have all of eternity to go back to to joining god as that drop in the ocean but for now as a human being take some time to embrace you know the at least the illusion of your separateness and and during that experience be in a loving relationship with akadosh baruchu I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think, if anything, that's one of the most beautiful parts of being a human being. Um, so the Zohar actually says that by keeping mitzvot, the divine influx entered the, the limbs of the human body that correspond to the limbs of the sefirot. And that is the primordial Adam. So, so what is this doing when it's telling us this? So we, we talked a little bit last year, last semester, about when you're so mindful while doing a mitzvah and your ego is so removed, all that's left is God. 
And it's, it's this paradoxical space in which there's me and there's God, and yet there's only God at the same time. And I'm performing these mitzvot, and it feels almost like it's Hashem doing the mitzvot to himself. Because my ego is nowhere to be found. This is, of course, one of the highest levels you could get to. But you could kind of meditate into it at any moment. So you're shaking your lulav. And you're not trying to get anything out of God. You're not asking for anything out of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You're just appreciating what's in your hands. You're holding this whole ecosystem in your hands. You know, we, we mentioned uh, that it's, the, the, it's taking it back to source from fruit to leaf to branch to stuff that grows by the water, to usmachtem lifnei Hashem. So imagine performing this mitzvah without even, you know, trying to impress God or trying to appease God or anything, just dancing with God at that moment. And the beauty of the sefirot is, and you might say, oh, how uh, egocentric and human-centric is the sefirot? To think that we're projecting the human form onto God with these sefirot, and it's like, no, no, you're, you're, you're flipping it over. Try to flip it back the other way, where you realize, no, it's the divine influx into the human body. And you get to a level where you say, Hashem, please use my hands to do your work. And, you know, I think Harambam is, uh, there's, there's a, a prayer that's, that, that's brought down. I'm not sure if it's actually written by him, but I've seen in doctor's offices, there's a beautiful prayer for a doctor to make before he goes and treats patients. And it's, you know, use my hands to do your healing because I know that that's where it comes from. Who am I after all? I'm just, you know, little old me, but Hashem, you have so much and, and, and I want to connect to what you have. So please give me the strength. Or, you know, I think uh, one of the hachamim before he would go into, I think it's Masechet Berachot, right? Before he would go to speak, he would say, Hashem, please put the right words in my mouth. He would say, Tefillah Ketzara. So I think that the Sifirot are trying to teach us about that, about this divine influx into the human body that allows us to really be a vessel for that Silim Elohim and that Neshama that's carrying out certain mitzvot. Any questions or comments about that? Uh, no. Is that, Rabbi, do you think that would be... Uh... Is that like Rasul the Mishdash Yisachem Kutu Kratan? Love that. Very nice. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. 613 mitzvot. How do they relate to the Sifirot? I don't think it's about the number of mitzvot or Sifirot. I think it's about the fact that the Sifirot correspond to parts of the body. So they're trying to show you that these sefirot are almost like vessels capturing some kind of divine influx. And then when you realize, oh, the sefirot correspond to my body, and there's almost like a merging of this divine influx into my body when I'm doing the mitzvot in the right way. It sounds like it's, it's, the, it's drawing from Selim Elohim, which Rambam says, no, it means the mind, right? That we mm. can speak and we can be creative and we can think. But they're taking it more literally. Yeah. To say, if we're the then our physical bodies are a divine vessel. Mm-hmm. And therefore they can become kadosh. So the betocham. Yes, the kedusha will be in the people. And therefore we are elevating ourselves mm. and uh, infusing ourselves with the divine presence through those actions. Are there other people who don't agree with that? I feel like it's pretty, uh, you know, uh, I don't know exactly the word, but like the Yitzhak Goikadot, like it seems pretty uh, clear in some way. Clear in some way. I think there are people that would uh, not, you know, emphasize it, emphasize things in a different way uh, to say we are servants, mm. right? And so we are nobody and we're servants and we um, use it not that we are, we become Kadosh, right? We are. A holy nation, the whole nation is holy. That's true because we're all serving. It's just like a, a bowl in the Beit HaMikdash is holy, mm-hmm. not because it's a divine bowl, but because it's used for holy things. So we use our bodies for holy things. It doesn't mean that we ourselves, it doesn't necessarily mean that we ourselves become divine. Right. So this is a mystical view. That's yeah, exactly. 
the, the one quote that really resonates with me in this context is we love God with the love that God gave us to love him. And what, what, I, what I think that means is it's almost like, you know, the idea of monism. It's all there's all this, this, this soup of everythingness. And we, we're, we're part of that. Whatever our body is, whatever this universe is. It's almost like panentheism, that, that God is in everything and everything is in God. So any love that I could ever possibly express towards God, ultimately, its source is God. And I'm just returning that love towards its source. So myself being a vessel, instead of saying, look how great I am, I'm, I'm the source of this love. Instead, you empty yourself so much of that ego and you say, no, let me just allow that, that love and that divine energy to flow through me into whatever mitzvot that I'm performing at that, in that moment. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's something for me, like on a day-to-day -day basis. When I, you know, let's say I'm sitting, and it's uh, late in the day and I'm tired and uh, the patient's rambling on and on about something. And then I have a moment of mindfulness. And I really just try to be present and I try to really fully give my attention to them and open my heart to them. It really makes a difference because I think a person can sense when you actually care about their, their treatment and about how they're going to be, you know, uh, seen and cared for, especially in psychiatry. It's not like any other field where you just, you know, a lot of the time it's just, can I, can you fix the guy's leg? This is part of the, the therapy is medication, but a big part of it is the therapeutic relationship. So uh, this allows me to, to just say, Hashem, please use my body to, and use my lips to, to speak the right words to help heal this person. And I think it's just a much more beautiful perspective than saying, oh, it's, it's only just molecules. It's, and, and reductionism, I think, can often be the opposite of, of the mystical experience. Not that reductionism is absolutely false, I think they're both true. And I think that's kind of what we've always been trying to say, the paradoxical nature of all this stuff. That on the one hand, yes, it is all just molecules. But at the same time, that's just one perspective to take. Another perspective is it's all love flowing through all of it. And it's all connection. And it's all somehow divine. Right. Great. Yes, so you said, I mean, so you keep saying God's performing and God is praying. We love God, but how does it? Is this when is this related or is this synonymous with divine intervention? In other words, you need to be heebie-jeebie to have intervention. It's a great question. I I don't think you have to be heebie-jeebie at all to to have intervention. I think divine intervention can be seen from this perspective of. Everything is constantly intervened by God, even though I don't currently see it. That's that's wow. more of a mystical perspective. Uh, but at the same time, you have uh, other feelings where it's like, you know, there, there's something that's so blatant and only you could kind of sense it at that moment that it's like, wow, that really feels like a tap on the shoulder by God, as Rabbi David Foreman would say. So like it happens to me sometimes like earlier today, actually, I was thinking of somebody I haven't thought of in a long time. Uh, and I don't know why they popped into my head or how. And then all of a sudden, I, I, literally that moment, I, I, I picked up my phone and I saw that that person's child, you know, messaged me or liked something. I want, uh, that was the first thing I saw on my phone. I was like, wow, that's freaky. That's wiggy. You know, I, I, and it's it's I almost feel wrong for for sharing that because it's almost like a lot of these uh, you know and when I'm when I'm when I'm trying to sell somebody that view of 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 faith in God based on these stories I think it, it very easily and very quickly dries out um, but at the same time I think these are very tender and very beautiful moments so don't stake your entire faith on those aha moments. But at the same time, appreciate them when they do come up and say, you know, this really felt like a divine tap on the shoulder for me. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah so that's that's kind of how it feels for me. It's like a balance between those two those two things. But fantastic question. Um, 
So here we say, Zohar also quotes as follows, Happy is the individual who, Ashri Adam, by observing each commandment, causes God to dwell in each of his limbs, making himself a dwelling place for God and making God king over each limb, so that no part of the body is devoid of God. That's exactly what we're saying. Yeah. It's not a mystical perspective, it is. I mean, it is the Zohar's perspective, so it's it's pretty mystical in that sense. But I agree with I, I agree with you that it's very much emit. But you know, the thing is, you have to kind of be able to have that that perspective. And thank God we're blessed to have this perspective. You talk to so many people in the scientific community, and they're so closed off to anything like this because they just see it as totally out there. And because the, it's been given a bad rap by people who are, you know, speaking about it in, in a certain extreme way. But I think the way that we kind of portray it is a little bit more palpable and sorry, more palatable for people where they could say, you know what, I, I, I see this as a meditative exercise where the experience of it can even be experienced as absolutely true when it connects me to the mystical experience. And, you know, you'll, you'll come back from that mystical experience and say, yeah, you know what? I really did have this intuition and this experience that God was dwelling in my body throughout my life, throughout everything I was doing. And I just didn't see it in all moments, but now I do. How beautiful is that? It's, it's, you can't take away the subjective human experience from anybody. How do we know anything in the first place anyway? not from the subjective human experience. Um, that's why I always talk about how, how freaky dreams are, because dreams are part of that experience. And that's one relative reality. And this is one relative reality. It's all relative realities. Um, we should have a, a quote and put it on your fridge. You know, it's all relative realities. That's <laughs> something to remind yourself of. Um, okay, great. God is the one performing the mitzvot. God is praying. We love God with the love he gave us to love him. That's what I said a second ago. Um, to me, that's an, another interesting one. The idea of it's almost like God is praying to himself. Like you, you get up to say, Arbit, and you remove your ego so much. And the words that you're speaking, they're not words that you're creating. They're words that were made by the Hachamim, which is fantastic. Because now I could just be this vessel for speaking these words and just observing myself speaking these words that are already divine. And so much of this, this mystical feeling is whatever I was looking for to try to find God, when I'm fully mindful, I realize it already was God. And I could even feel into that a little bit right now. You know, I don't have to look for anything in the next sentence that I speak with you guys. I don't have to look for anything to prove to you guys that there's wisdom in it, you know, it's not about that. It's about realizing we're here right now and we're all dwelling in the perfection of God's kingdom, whatever that means, from one perspective. And I think that's, in a lot of people's views, that's the absolute perspective sometimes. That what is right now is perfect. And that's not something to intellectually understand, something to experience and uh, may we all be zochet to experience that. Yeah, amen. So before we go to prophetic Kabbalah, any other questions or comments? Okay, let's go right along. So observance of the mitzvot says prophetic Kabbalah. So just a, a couple of words about prophetic Kabbalah. This is the idea that in order to achieve prophecy, in order to achieve nevuah, whatever that means, some kind of knowledge at least, not really necessarily changing anything in the divine realms, but a knowledge of something divine. You have to be able to engage in some of these understandings and practices. So let's see. They'll say observance of the mitzvot is a necessary prerequisite for the intellectual perfection that can be a prelude to prophecy. So let's say, part, you know, we're talking about how mitzvot play a role in each of these different schools. For them, it's really, first and foremost, these mitzvot shape you into the kind of person who's capable of being a receptacle and having that experience. So while it might be true that the biggest sinner 
is also part of the, the divine game. And he's also, you know, perfect, whatever that means. And if you want to experience that perfection, you probably can't be a sinner, according to this school. You probably need to be more righteous. And as a natural consequence of that righteousness comes this experience of, ah, now I'm in the know about these divine things. Hacham Abraham Abulafia, very unique perspective. He emphasizes the Tetragrammaton for achieving the mystical experience. He's a person who himself claims to have received prophecy and to become a prophet. Uh, and for him, it was all about the name of God, the yod Vavke, the four-letter name of God. Um, and when you're able to play around with a mantra or specifically with God's name, which apparently has extra special you know, abilities for this. And, I, you know, uh, I've spoken to you about my experience with my rabbi where, you know, my rabbi told me um, when I was in Israel, we were praying out of beat uh, on, on his rooftop. And he says, Michael, I, I, you know, right before we did uh, Shema, he's like, he says, I think I figured out the correct pronunciation of God's name. And I said, that's unbelievable. Will you, will you tell it to me? And my rabbi says, no, but I'll send you on a journey to figure it out for yourself. And he says, by the way, I never actually say God's name the way that I discovered for it to be pronounced. I only meditate on it and I only think it. But I found that it has some kind of unique properties to it in terms of bringing me closer to the oneness and to God. And a meditative experience. And for me, this absolutely blew me away. And I, I really want to further explore, uh, you know, the pronunciation of God's name and how this uh, might play into some type of meditative practice that can allow me to be more of a receptacle for this experience. Um, for other Mekubalim, the performance of the mitzvot is also a way of articulating the name of God in the, in the form of a deed. So this is really interesting. That when you're doing this mitzvah and you're performing the, the, this good deed, you're actually expressing physically the name of God in some way. And they'll say you, that we want you to imagine. Um, we, you know, we want you to imagine uh, this name of God manifesting as this deed that you're doing. And even if you say all these people out to lunch, imagine if you could actually experience, uh, you know, this, this uh, performance of this mitzvah. And as you're doing it, you're watching the letters of God, God's name flowing into uh, this, this action that you're performing. Isn't that unbelievable? I think that's incredible. I think that's that's like uh, talking about mindfulness. This is something that will keep you grounded and connected to God in all moments. So every time I say a beracha, I, I watch the words of the beracha kind of floating into the food. And as I'm eating it, I'm saying, and I, and I watch those sparks entering my body. And it's a meditative exercise. And it elevates from the mundane to the spiritual, whatever's going on. Um, and here's a, a beautiful way that they show this. So how do you spell the word mitzvah in Hebrew? Mem sadi vav he, right? Anybody know what atbash means? Atbash, exactly. You, you exchange aleph for tav, bet for shin, and you, you, you take the first uh, letter of the alphabet and you exchange it for the last letter. Second to first for the second to last, and so on and so forth. So if you do atbash for the word mitzvah, for the first two letters, you get from mem, you get yod, and for sadi, you get he. And then it's vav he. So mitzvah becomes yod ke vav ke. Mitzvah actually, the, the, you know, the mem sadi turns into yod ke, and then you leave the vav ke, and now you have the mitzvah is a literal actual expression. I knew you would like this. I, when I read this, I thought of you, Mickey. And and like there's there's a certain level of 
wow, you know, the, the mitzvah itself is a way of articulating the name of God. And, you know, you, you think about some of these verses that we have in Tehillim that are so beautiful. The heavens speak of the glory of God and uh, the sky speaks of the works of his hands. And it's like, this is actually, in a way, almost literally true when you take this perspective that at all moments, everything is screaming, kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. The, the entire earth is filled with his glory. Like the water fills the oceans. And if you're able to take this perspective, it's, it's, it is a personification, but at the same time, it's so intimate and so beautiful. And it's a way of saying everything is screaming out to me and singing to me right now that it is divine and that it's all part of this malchut. It's all part of this unified kingdom of God. And if the word God or the word kingdom doesn't appeal to you, insert Tao, insert whatever you want, and you don't have to personify it as much. It's all singing and dancing to it. And that's the beauty of existence. Um, so unlike other mystical traditions, Jewish mysticism did not require any separation from normal communal religious practices. There was no segregation from the, the, from the community in some kind of monastic order. As a mystic, you were fully embraced and still can be fully embraced within the practice of Judaism. So nobody's stopping me when I come to, to shul and I want to pray and I do my own Amidah. If I want to picture whatever I want to picture, I can. And if I want to meditate on whatever I want to meditate on during my tefillah, I can. And I think this is part of the uniqueness of Judaism is that it doesn't require us to go move to Tibet or it doesn't require us even to go to Israel. You know, and, and it's right here, right now, wherever you are with the community that, that you're part of and to appreciate that togetherness and your own unique flavor within Judaism. Um, so there's a way of overlaying mysticism into normative Judaism. So you do your mitzvot the same way everyone else does their mitzvot. And the halakha doesn't change for you just because you're a mystic. But while I'm doing shaking my lulav, it might not be exactly the same as somebody else shaking their lulav. And that's fine. You know, and, and each of us connects to source in different ways. Pesach is actually a, a, a unique holiday for, for a lot of uh, this, this school of Kabbalah. They think about it as a holy intercourse among the lower Sifirot. And there's something specifically about Pesach, Zeman Hayrutenu. It's about this freedom that we were gaining. And the lower Sifirot were, were consorting with each other. And there, there's a, a certain romance to what's going on on Pesach. You know, like Yirmiyahu says, he says, I remember for you the days of when you were like a bridegroom following me, says Hashem, into the desert. Imagine a bride following a groom. That's the comparison to B'nai Israel following God into the desert. There's a love story going on here. So for that reason, it seems that Pesach holds like, a, you know, following God into a land that was an unsown. So we're total leap of faith into God's hands. That's the same way a, a bride does to a groom. There's a romance to what's going on on Pesach, and that's reflected in the Kabbalistic ideas. And then finally, you have Tikkun Leil Shavuot. There's a reparation of the Sefirot to achieve a semblance of the experience of the re revelation of Har Sinai. Um, so what's going on here is they say Shavuot has a, a very unique capability to it, where in order to experience some kind of taste of or even a recreation of the revelation at Sinai, we need to be able to experience what's called Tikkun Leil Shavuot. So in the mystical diary of Rabbi Yosef Karo, he claims to have achieved 
some degree of revelatory experiences. This is the person who wrote the most fundamental uh, book for us, the Shulchan Aruch of, of Halakha, and yet he was a person that was so steeped and in love with mysticism, and he was a person that was able to, for himself, recreate that experience. So why is this so unique? Who was he? He was a person that was bringing almost all of Judaism to Ben Israel. He's codifying the entire halachic system. And so for him to experience as though he himself was standing on Harsinai was extra, extra special. Because now when he writes his book of halacha, he could feel like, I'm getting this directly from God. And there's no more beautiful experience than that. There's no more beautiful experience of direct divine connection in what we're doing. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll say a couple more things before we have to end. Kabbalah, in a lot of ways, also came as a response to the Ta'ameh HaMitzvot of Hanambam, that, uh, that Hanambam had certain ways of, and a lot of the other rationalistic rabbis at the time, had a way of explaining the mitzvot with very logical, practical things, which is beautiful. But Kabbalah responded to that and said, it's not enough. You can't just say that it's this and nothing more. Uh, so I'll open it to you guys. What do you think? Do, do these logical explanations help you or do they hinder you? Do they make it so that Judaism becomes, oh, it's explained. Yeah, I could just explain it away. Or, in fact, is Judaism still something that's so beautiful, even though it, it has these naturalistic explanations. What do you guys think? It's a great question. It's hmm. difficult to answer. Um, I think that definitely there's an element of, okay, so a mitzvah has real repercussions in this world. And so there should be rational reasons for why you're doing that. Mm. Healthy, you know, the reason is because you'll feel better, you know. And so there, there has to be an element of rationalism in it, and and it only makes sense that way, uh, with specific maybe deviations, mm. maybe even, but you can even argue that those have their underlying reasons also. Mm. Um, but I do think there's something to saying that can't just be it. Uh, and we know that kind of like we said, when you have intention to do something, when you don't have the intention, you do the mitzvah with intention and not, there's a difference. Yeah. So according to the rational argument, maybe there wouldn't be such a big difference. I said that kind of said that kind of doesn't matter. But here we're saying, if you don't know the guy, it's better. If you know, you do it like this, it's yeah. better. There's a, this element of like doing it right, doing it better. Mm. Um, and I think that it's that from there that you really can feel the, let's say, mystical experience. You can't really mm. feel it in the rational way of like, just do it, you know, you need to kind of have that. Because then I could, if I understand the Ta'amiya mitzvot, if I understand the reasons for the mitzvot, you might think, oh, then I could simply accomplish those things without doing the mitzvot, they're just a different means. So if it's trying to teach me how to be a good person, I don't have to keep these ritualistic laws to be a good person. But if you give it an extra special meaning of like, no, this is a traditional thing. And this is something that only really with this can you have this experience. Oh, that's next level. That's something you can't get from just secular ethics. Right. Questions or comments from the peanut gallery here. <laughs> OK, great. So I think I think we'll pause here. Um, you guys are, were really awesome. Thank you for, for your participation and, and opening Thanks, up to this. So much fun. You know, I, I, I get such a hana'ah and it, it grounds me and it brings me more into more presence. So I hope that whatever I speak and whatever I say can, can open you to your own personal experience of connection with the divine in, in your life journey. Thank you, Michael. Be in touch. Love you guys. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The truth of the matter is that 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 you the way that the way that you you present really 
elevates to like incredible heights. I got it done. Thank you. I, I feel the same way about your comments and just your presence, your energy. Really, I feed off of it. I feed off of you guys. And when you guys are into it, 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 it helps me understand more and feel more into it. So I, I love you. And I, I hope we have many years of, uh, of this journey together. No, it's beautiful. It's really like the truth, the whole team. It's like a snowball effect. Everybody. Have a great Amen. week, everybody. Thanks, man. Have a great week. Good vibes all around. Allah Okay, I love you. Bye. Take care.